Good morning. Good to see you. My name is Luke. I'm part of the teaching team here, one of the pastors. And we are kind of plodding through the book of Ephesians over the course of this year. And this message today is really kind of part one in what will be a kind of three-part message. And I'll tell you more about that in a little bit. Now, I'm going to need you to think today. I assume that you think every time you come here. I hope you do. I want you to be a thinking people, and I want you to you know, always be kind of looking at we, what we talk about and go, okay, does that line up with Scripture? So I want you to be thinking all the time, but, but especially today as we kind of introduce uh, th- this section in chapter 2 of Ephesians and what will go into the beginning of chapter 3 in the coming weeks. And so uh, as we're thinking, here's the first thing I want you to just kind of be thinking about to set up our conversation. Uh, realize this, Christianity introduced some powerful new values into the world that were not around before Christianity. Christianity introduced some things that we all take for granted. We all assume, oh yeah, of course, everyone's always thought that, that everyone didn't always think until Christianity came. Let me give you some examples. So compassion for the vulnerable. That's a commonly held value. Yeah, we should be compassionate towards those who are weak, towards those who are vulnerable. That's a, that's a very common thing. That was not a common thing before Christianity. The assumption was the strong ain't the weak, and if you're weak, well, hey, too bad, so sad. Christianity said, no, we need to have compassion for the vulnerable. Christianity also said, we need to love people. We need to have kindness. We need to have mercy. We need to have forgiveness. We need to have justice. Those were things that were not assumed before Christianity. Even the idea that God loves us, right? Doesn't everyone believe, oh yeah, of course God loves us. People didn't assume that before Christianity. They, if they believed there was God, said, yeah, there's God, but, but I don't know why he should be at all interested in me. Christianity changed that. Christianity uh, brought into the world the idea of, of individual human rights, the idea that everybody's made in the image of God, everybody is therefore valuable, everyone therefore has dignity, everyone therefore has worth, and individual rights matter, right? We, we think a lot today about human rights and the countries that violate human rights. We think about that because Christianity brought it into the world. Similarly, we believe in the equality of all people because Christianity brought that into the world. There was not an assumption that people were equal. The assumption that some people were rich, some people were poor, some people were from this background or that background, but not everybody's equal. Of course not everybody's equal. Christianity changed that. I could make a longer list and go on and on and on, but there's a lot of values that we assume today that are only around because Christianity introduced them. Now, here's what's interesting. Now we live in a, in a not very Christian culture, a secular culture, you could call it, or maybe a post-Christian culture, where for the most part, people are kind of moved on past Christianity. They're not very interested in, in God, not very interested in Jesus, maybe interested in spirituality, definitely not interested in the Christian church, but, but we're kind of this secular post-Christian culture. Here's what's fascinating. Our secular post-Christian culture wants to hold on to the values that I just mentioned, but divorced from Jesus, right? So our secular culture would go, compassion for the vulnerable? Of course. Love, mercy, justice? Of course. Forgiveness? Yes, of course we should forgive our enemies. We should be kind. They want that. These are aspects that were introduced by Christianity that are part of the kingdom of God, but they don't want Jesus to be part of it. Here's a way you could say it. Our secular post-Christian culture wants the kingdom, but not the king. They want the kingdom of God, but not the king who reigns 
over that kingdom. That phrase comes to me from Mark Sayers. He's an Australian pastor and author. Here's what he says. He says, post-Christianity is ultimately the project of the West to move beyond Christianity whilst feasting upon its fruit. That's really interesting. He says, we are offered the mirage that we can have community without commitment, faith without discipleship, the kingdom without the king. We go, oh, yeah, yeah, we love all these things that Christianity's brought into the world, but, but we don't want Christianity. We, don't want, we want the kingdom of God and all those values, but not Jesus. Like that, no, we don't want that. Now, because of that, if you divorce the kingdom from the king, what you end up with is distortions. You end up in places where there's inconsistencies and there's idolatry, even as you try to pursue these particular values. So think about it. In our secular post-Christian culture, there's compassionate for the vulnerable as long as the vulnerable are already born. So of course, we've got to be compassionate on everybody, but not really everybody. Christianity would say, no, we have to be compassionate on all the vulnerable, not just the ones who've made it to be born. The unborn are the most vulnerable. There's not a great deal of compassion for them. Another distortion is, is while it's good that we sort of see that no matter what color you are or what ethnicity you are, that we're all equal, that's a good thing, but, but it's kind of been idolized and, and turned into a kind of idolatry where now we, we see in a post-Christian secular culture, we just see identity groups. These are those people, and those are those people, and this, this community and that community, and everyone's kind of in a race to get to the bottom of the victim pile, you know, to prove how oppressed they are and how overlooked they are. And so we've kind of, this identity politics, identity grouping thing is this distortion of what is an otherwise Christian value to see all people as equal. Another one would be the exaltation of science and technology. There's this sense, okay, we want this utopia, we want this kingdom, we don't want it with the king, we don't want Jesus to bring it about, how can we bring it about? Oh, I know, through science and technology and kind of harnessing human intellect, and if we could just kind of build the right stuff, then eventually we could bring in utopia. Or you think about it with love. The Christian post-secular culture loves love, but says, hey, you get to redefine it however you want. As long as it, it relates to whatever feels good to an individual, hey, whatever your definition is. So there's these Christian values that start to look not very Christian because you have the kingdom without the king. Tracking with me? Now, here's the temptation that some Christians face on the other side, is some Christians begin to want the king without the kingdom. So what happens is here is there can be this reality where we have this kind of me and God approach to spirituality. It, this is about my sin and my shame and my guilt and how my stuff makes me feel bad about me and how Jesus came to die for me because Jesus loves me. And if I believe in Jesus, I can go to heaven when I die. Is that true? Yes, gloriously true. But if that's the extent of the gospel, then what we're saying is I want the king, but I don't really want the kingdom. It ends up with this very dualistic approach to life where all that matters is the kind of spiritual stuff, the me and God stuff, and the social stuff. Eh, that, 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 that's not part of it. Think, think about it this way. This might be evidence, this I want the king but not the kingdom. It might be evidenced by some Christians who feel like their work will only matter if they got into full-time ministry. 
If I became a preacher, if I became a, a missionary, if I, you know, joined some sort of nonprofit ministry, like then God would care about my work. But, but you know what? Right now I just blank. I'm just a teacher. I'm just a carpenter. I'm just a programmer. I'm just a mom. That reveals a dualism. The reality is God wants all of life, the king and the kingdom. Now, here's a much more extreme example. I heard this uh, this week in, in my seminary program. I've got six weeks till I graduate seminary. How fun is that? I'm very excited. The most recent class I've been in is on modern church history. And, and the professor this week just gave an example of a, a perfect and devastating example of Christians who were fine with pursuing the king but didn't care about the kingdom. It relates to slavery. So Christians, many slaveholders and slave traders, at least would claim some kind of Christian faith. I mean, it's all part of Western culture at that point. And there was this reality that, that Christians thought, okay, well, you can't enslave other Christians, so we'll find barbaric people and enslave them. And all that was fine until some of these African slaves decided they wanted to become Christians. Well, gosh, what do we do now? So what they did, and, and I'm going to read you a, a quote from the early 1700s in South Carolina, is before a slave would be baptized, they had to take an oath. Listen to this oath. You declare in the presence of God and before this congregation that you do not ask for the holy baptism out of any design to free yourself from the duty and obedience that you owe to your master while you live, but merely for the good of your soul. And to partake of the graces and blessings promised to the members of the church of Jesus Christ. You hear that? You hear the evil of that? Do you hear the, you, we're happy to give you the king, but you cannot have the kingdom. We would be happy to give you blessings for your soul, for the afterlife, but don't expect any kind of brotherhood in the present life. We'll call you brother, but we'll treat you like property. That's the king without the kingdom. Now, there's lots of financial incentive to do that, right? There's lots of reasons why that happened. And again, it's an extreme example, but I want you to see that Christians can fall into this dualistic way of thinking where there's spiritual stuff and there's not spiritual stuff, and God only cares about the spiritual stuff. When you do that, what you're saying is, I want the king, but not the kingdom. Now... If you lose the king or the kingdom, you lose the gospel. This is one of the major themes that's going to come up this week and in the next few weeks, and frankly, I hope comes up through the entirety of my ministry as a preacher. If you lose the king or you lose the kingdom, you don't have a gospel, right? If you want the kingdom without Jesus, there's no gospel because Jesus is the good news of the gospel. And if you say, well, I want Jesus, just me and him, but you don't care about his kingdom, you're ignoring the very way that Jesus announced his gospel, which was in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. This is why we say all of life is all for Jesus, every part of it. Why? Because there's a king Jesus who reigns over it, and it's a kingdom. This is also the theme of Ephesians 2. See, one of the ways that I know that we sort of fall into this king but no kingdom is, is, is our understanding of Ephesians 2. See, if you ask someone who's been a Christian for a while about Ephesians 2, they go, oh, I love Ephesians 2. And you know what they're talking about, right? 
They're talking about verses 1 to 10. Oh, yeah, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and you were following the course of the world, but God's rich in mercy, and he made you alive through Christ. By grace, you've been saved. You've been saved by grace, not through faith, not a result of works, lest you'd boast, and you're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Oh, I love Ephesians 2. Great. What's the rest of Ephesians 2 about? That's, is, is that a trick question? Is there a rest of Ephesians 2? Like, see, the reality is the first part of Ephesians 2 is talking about our relationship with the king. And the second part, the second half of Ephesians 2 is talking about our life as a church where we're a preview of the kingdom. But for most Christians, you might as well get scissors and just cut the back half of chapter 2 out because we just don't know it. We want to pursue a king and a kingdom. And that's what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2. Here's a great summary of Ephesians 2 by a scholar, Timothy Gombus. He says this, In Ephesians 2, regarded by scholars as the heart of Ephesians, Paul claims that God has acted powerfully and radically in Christ to begin setting the world right. He has defeated the powers that have hijacked God's world, holding it in their enslaving grip. God is freeing people from death, transforming their lives, uniting humanity in Christ, and building the church as a monument to his victory over the powers of evil. Now, if you look at that sentence, the freeing people from death and transforming their lives, that's the first part of Ephesians 2. The uh, uniting humanity in Christ and building uh, the church as a monument to the... uh, a, a monument of his victory over the powers of evil, that's the second part of Ephesians 2. And so both of these are what's going on. So here's the reality. According to Ephesians 2, Jesus' kingdom is evidenced through unity in the church, specifically ethnic or racial unity. The kingdom of God is evidenced in the church, according to Paul, through the unity of the church across racial or ethnic lines. That's what the back half of Ephesians 2 is about. And so that's what we're going to be looking at over these next three weeks. Ethnic slash racial unity in the church. Here's what we're looking at today. We're going to answer a question today. How did Jesus create ethnic or racial unity in the church? Next week, we're going to ask, as we look at the rest of Ephesians 2, why does it matter? And then the third week... We're going to look at the beginning of chapter 3, and we're going to ask, what does this mean for us here at Gateway? So here's what I want to ask. I know that you can't always do this, but I want to ask if you would really try hard to be here all three weeks. Right? You you do this with Netflix, right? Netflix is like one long 11-hour movie, and you just watch it in little batches. Think about it this way. This is just one long sermon, and this is episode one. Okay? So you don't want to miss episode two and three. Come back. Come be part of this conversation. Now, as soon as I say ethnic racial unity, I even saw some of your heads go, hmm? Er? What, what are we talking about? I didn't see this coming. Oh. And, and so anytime I, I preach on things that I know are controversial or difficult, I always kind of want to have some considerations up front. Here's the first one. Let this begin the conversation, not end it. Let it begin the conversation. Maybe you'll hear something today or in the coming weeks, you go, gosh, that rubbed me the wrong way. 
Let it begin the conversation. Don't just stomp out because maybe you heard something I didn't actually say or maybe I said something that, gosh, I probably shouldn't have said it that way and let's try to clarify. Or maybe all kinds of things could happen. Let this just begin the conversation, not end it. Here's a second consideration. The scriptures are our final authority. The scriptures are our final authority. That's a good spot for an amen, right? The scriptures are our final authority. Amen, Amen. right? This is not about what's Luke thought about this week. What are our ideas about this or that? No, the scriptures are our final authority. I don't have permission from God's word to just talk about what I get excited about. I have permission to talk about what the scriptures say. So the scriptures are our final authority. Here's the third consideration. Don't overestimate the connection between Jew-Gentile dynamics in Ephesians 2 and racial dynamics in the United States. So Ephesians 2, what we're going to see is it's about how God has brought Jews and Gentiles, these people groups who did not get along in any way, brought them together in Christ. What I'm asking is don't overdo the connection between that and racial dynamics in America. It's not a one-to-one thing. There are differences about that. Okay, that's the third consideration. The fourth one is don't underestimate the connection between them. Just because it's not one-to-one doesn't mean there aren't principles actually here that we need to hear and think about and figure out how to apply because there you had ethnic people divided. Here we have ethnic people divided. How do we navigate that? Well, there's things we're going to be able to learn here. So don't overdo the connection, but don't underdo it either. And then here's the fifth consideration is that Ephesians 2 is mostly about the life of the church. It's not advocating a particular public policy. It's not advocating some sort of partisan agenda. It's about the life of the church. It's saying the people of God are to be a preview of the kingdom of God submitted to King Jesus. This is about the life of the church, not advocating a particular public policy. All right? So with those considerations, before we dive in, let's pray. Father in heaven, we invite you now to speak by your spirit, through your word. Help us to hear your voice through the text. Would you open our hearts to be able to see what Christ has done? Not just to reconcile us to you, Father, but to reconcile us with one another. We pray for that in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so here's our big question that we're going to look at today, is how did Jesus create ethnic or racial unity in the church? Now, I'm going to use those terms kind of interchangeably. I know that there's a difference. The Bible uses the word ethne, talks more about ethnic peoples. Race is a little bit more of a modern construct, but that is also how we talk about these issues a lot. So I'm going to kind of use those interchangeably, just give me some grace about that. The question is, how did Jesus create ethnic racial unity in the church. And the simple answer is actually in verse 13. If you just want a simple answer, how do we understand this? Look at verse 13. It says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So there you have it. Make sense? <laughs> like, uh, no, I, I need a little more help. I need a little more information. Yes, you do. But that's the simple answer, is that Christ Jesus took those who were far off and brought them near through his blood. Now, we want to understand this better because this Jew-Gentile dynamic is not something we're familiar with. By the way, the word Gentile 
because uh, I was in church for a long time, and I was always like, what's a Gentile? I wasn't very smart. So what's a Gentile? Gentile is a, a non-Jew. So it's a good question. If you're, what's a Gentile? A Gentile is someone who's not Jewish, which I'm guessing is just about everybody in this room is not ethnically Jewish. You're a Gentile. It's hard for us to understand how big the separation was between Jew and Gentile in this particular context. Now, Paul begins this discussion in verse 11. So look there with me at verse 11. He says, therefore, now, stop. (laughs) We didn't get very far. All right. Here's a key thing when you read the Bible. Some of you have heard me say this before. When you come across the word therefore, there's a question you have to always ask. What is the therefore, therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Anytime you see the word therefore, it's referring back to something that happened. And so in this particular case, Paul's saying, hey, therefore, in light of what I just told you in verses 1 to 10, which was about how you could have relationship and life in Christ because God has made you alive with Christ, therefore... Look at this. So you're going to see there's a connection here between our vertical life with God and our horizontal life with one another. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Interesting here, Paul is directly addressing the Gentiles. In in the Ephesian church, it would have been probably a majority of Gentiles and some Jews, So more Gentiles than Jews, but Jews tended to have more of the kind of uh, priority, spiritually speaking, as we'll see in just a moment. But in this particular case, Paul is specifically addressing the Gentiles. He's saying, hey, Gentiles, there's some stuff that you need to think about. They were called, it says there in verse 11, the uncircumcision. This was like a term of derision. Ah, the uncircumcision. This was a slur. This was a slander. And for all the bad names that we call one another today, I'm really glad... (laughs) that that one's gone away, right? Like, that's just an uncomfortable slur for a lot of reasons. But the Jews prided themselves on, we're the people of circumcision. It was this sign that we have relationship with God, and if you're the uncircumcision, you don't, you're excluded, you're outside. And and that kind of exclusion is what Paul talks about in verse 12. He says, you Gentiles, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In verse 12, he gives five, what's the opposite of a benefit? Five not benefits of being a Gentile. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. That word commonwealth could also be translated citizenship. So it's like you're not part of this state, this body, this citizenship, commonwealth of of Jewish people. So separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth, strangers to the covenants of promise. So God's made all these covenants, all these promises, specifically to Abraham and to David. You're not part of that. Having no hope and without God in the world. That phrase without God is the Greek word atheos. Now, these people were not atheistic, the way we think about atheists who don't believe in anything. He's just saying, you were without the one true God. So this was a dire, difficult situation. The Gentiles were literally kept out from the people of God by what's called a soreg or a wall. And so I want to show you this picture here that we have. 
of the temple. This is kind of a reconstruction of what the temple might have looked like. And where the red arrow is, you see that there's a wall. And that was the soreg, the the wall that divided Jews and Gentiles. So if you were a Gentile and you wanted to worship at the temple, you could go outside of that wall. That wall is about four and a half feet tall, by the way, so you could look over it. But you would be outside that wall, and that was the court of the Gentiles. And you could not get in closer. You were literally kept out. Um, on this particular wall, there was, we've actually found places where they've, they found like postings that were put on this wall as a warning to Gentiles. Here's what it said. No foreigner is to enter within the forecourt around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his subsequent death. This is no joke. You are not allowed in. And by the way, this was designed by God. This was God's decision, and God did it. It seems to try to help Israel have a unique, distinct identity so that they wouldn't fall into the idolatry of the nation, so that they could be a distinct people that would end up blessing the rest of the nations. It also seems like perhaps God did it this way to show how powerfully the gospel of Christ changes things. But for whatever the reason is, they were to be separate, and yet the Jews took this way too far. See, they hadn't really understood even the story of the scripture because Abraham was told, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you'll be a blessing to the nations. And the Psalms are filled with verses like, let the nations be glad, let the peoples rejoice. Israel was to be a light to the nation, to the nations, to the rest of the ethnicities of the world, rather than taking pride that they were somehow better because they were God's chosen people. But they had so much pride. And so much hatred, really, toward Gentiles. Here's some things I read about as I was studying this. Many Jews believed at this time that Gentiles were created by God simply to be fuel for the fires of hell. Why did God create Gentiles? Well, they, hell's got to burn something. That's kind of the idea. Some Jewish scholars, not everybody, and some Jewish teachers, but, but definitely some, taught that it was not lawful for a Jew to help a Gentile mother who was having kind of a, a birth emergency because if you stopped to help her and show compassion on her, you would be simply aiding the bringing of another Gentile into the world. For many, if a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl or a Jewish daughter married a Gentile boy, the Jewish family would have a funeral for that child. They're dead to us. I mean, the hatred's significant. And actually, we saw this. If you were with us last year, we were working through the book of Acts. And what we saw in the book of Acts is that the only time riots seemed to break out was when Paul said, hey, the Gentiles get to be part of this now. The Jews would listen, yeah, listen, listen, listen. And he would say, and the Gentiles are included, riot. So there's extreme animus, extreme hatred between Jew and Gentile. And what Paul is writing is that God has not only reconciled you with God, but listen, Gentiles, here's the good news. Jesus intervened. Jesus intervened to make one new people. How did Jesus intervene? Well, that's what we're going to look at here in this particular text. And I've come up with 10 things that I see here in this passage that Jesus did to intervene. First one is in verse 13, is Jesus brought the far off near. Look at verse 13. But now, 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 hey, if you've been with us through Ephesians, that should get your attention. Do you remember the first part of Ephesians 2? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of the power of the world, following the 
spirit that's not working the sons of disobedience. But God, you remember that? Here was your horrible condition, but God, it's the same thing here. You were far off, you were not included, but now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul's saying, listen, Gentiles, you were excluded, you were far away, you could not come in, but now through the blood of Jesus Christ, you're included, you're welcomed, you're brought near. But now God has intervened. Jesus, secondly, is himself our peace, it says in verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Verse 14 also tells us, number three, that Jesus made us both one, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one. This is an amazing thing. Rather than saying, okay, Jewish, that's your main identity. Gentile, that's your main identity. No, we're now one. How did that happen? Well, verse 14 tells us, number four, that Jesus broke down the dividing wall. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I showed you a picture of the dividing wall. Here's what Paul's saying. That's gone. He's saying, listen, Ephesian Gentiles, you could go to Jerusalem right now because that temple's still standing, and if you go there, you'll have to be in the outer court. But listen, when you gather as the church, here's what you need to know. Jesus has broken that wall down. Jesus has smashed it to pieces. Jesus has made one new man. He broke down the dividing wall. Verse 15 tells us, fifth, that Jesus abolished the law of commandments. Broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. This was how the Jews kept themselves so aloof from the Gentiles as they would always claim that, well, the law wouldn't allow me to do that. Seth Trout has written a helpful post about this. What does it mean that, that Christ abolished the law of commandments? That's on our website if you want to dig more into that, but that's another thing. Jesus did. Number six, Jesus created one new man in him, it says in verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. This is an amazing thing. Notice that, that Paul is not saying, hey, there's no distinctions between Jew and Gentile. You shouldn't talk about that. You should be ethnic blind. He's not saying that. Because he said, you Gentiles, he's, keep, he's saying, there, I, I get that there's different groups of people, but listen, in Christ, you're one new humanity. One new man, he says. Verse 16 says, number seven, that Jesus reconciled both Jew and Gentile to God, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. The word reconcile indicates that enemies can become friends. That's what happens. When we're reconciled to God, we were enemies of his, but now we're friends. When we're reconciled to one another in the church, it means that enemies, these people who normally would say, hey, my daughter hooks up with your daughter, we're having a funeral. Not anymore, not in the church. We're family, we're reconciled. How did Jesus do that? Well, verse 16, number eight, he killed the hostility and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. I love the irony of this passage. How did Jesus kill hostility? By being killed. He was killed to kill the hostility. He experienced hostility to kill it. I love that. 
Number nine, Jesus preached peace to those far and near, it says in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. And number 10, Jesus gave access in one spirit to the Father. For through him, verse 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. If you read the book of Acts, what you'll see is the way that the Jewish leaders of the church knew that this was a real work of God among the Gentiles was the Spirit came to them. And they could have very easily said, well, we're going to have a Jewish church and we're going to have a Gentile church, but they didn't do that. Why? Because Paul is saying, we are one new man. The wall of hostility is broken down. We share the same Spirit. We share the same Father. We are one in Christ. Get this, we're not one everywhere else, but in Christ, we're one. Jesus does what the world can't do. Now, here's the thing that I've learned. I learned this a lot last year when we were going through the book of Acts, is that sometimes when, when we talk about ethnic racial unity, and that came up a lot in the book of Acts, you can imagine, some of you were here for that. Whether it was me or whether it was Josh or whether it was Seth or whoever it was that was preaching, Whenever that would come up, we would sometimes get feedback, either directly or sometimes indirectly, from people who would basically say something like, gosh, it feels like you guys have some like partisan agenda, or, uh, you know, it feels like we're getting into these social issues that makes me uncomfortable. Here's what they'd say. Why don't you just preach the gospel? Now, let me tell you, here's what I love about that. Here's what I love about that. I love that we have a church that wants the gospel. I mean, what else, what else is there? Like, hey, Luke's greatest thoughts. <laughs> I mean, I might put those on Facebook, but don't come sit here for a half hour and listen to them. That's not that helpful. Who cares about that? I, and so I love, yeah, you want the gospel. That's what I want. I don't feel the freedom to just say whatever I want. I, I want to preach the gospel. Sometimes this happens on Sunday mornings, not every week, but sometimes on Sunday mornings as I'm saying bye to my family and, and heading over to church, sometimes Molly will say to Mary, our three-year-old, she'll say, hey, Mary, tell Daddy to preach the word. And she'll go, preach the word, Dad. I'm always like, yeah. <laughs> preach the word. And, he, and, and you know what that word is? It's the word of the gospel. That's what I want. So when you say, just preach the gospel, I go, yes, yes, you're right. Just preach the gospel. Don't preach partisanship. No, preach the gospel. But, but can I tell you what breaks my heart when I hear people say that or when I know people think that? Here's what breaks my heart. Is if you think that, your gospel is so small. It's so limited. It's so truncated. It's so shrunk. How did Jesus create ethnic, racial unity in the church? Did you see how gospel-focused this language is? Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 16. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross. Now listen, are the blood of Christ and the cross of Christ central to the gospel? Yes. Therefore, racial ethnic unity is central to the gospel. 
It is. You see it there. By the blood, through the cross. Listen, next week we're going to talk about why does this matter. We're going to get into more reasons from the text and culturally why we should really be thinking about these things. But don't miss this. Ethnic and racial unity in the church is a gospel issue. It is precious to Jesus who spilled his blood to create this. You cannot read Paul and go, well, Paul, that's just partisan. No, no, no. It's gospel. It's connected. It's the fleshing out of the good news of Jesus Christ that reconciles us to the Father and reconciles us in the church and does what the world cannot do. Listen, the world is hungry for racial reconciliation. The world is hungry to bring people together. Listen, you can't do it without the king. But shame on us if we want to just have the king and not have that part of the kingdom. We have an opportunity to show the world what life is like under King Jesus. And part of it is embracing that in Christ we are one. That the wall of hostility has been broken down and to show the world something beautiful. So before we go to next week, I want to ask you to consider two things. Number one, we should be people who rejoice. Rejoice at how God does this. I just look around this room and I think there is not another place you could find this collection of people gathered. Younger, older, different shades, different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different religious beliefs, different stuff. I mean, I just look and I'm sure our church can and hopefully someday will be even more diverse to represent the, the throne room of heaven that will be gathered there. But, but I look at this now and I think, wow, God, you are doing something. You are doing something in bringing people together who might otherwise never be together. God, thank you. We should rejoice for that. But secondly, I want to ask you, would you over these next few weeks be asking God to lead you toward repentance? Would you ask God, Lord, are there blind spots that I have? Are there ways my heart has been hard to the work you want to do to show the world what it's like with Christ. God, is there, get this, by definition, blind spots, you can't see them, right? So would you just ask God, God, would you reveal yourself here? God, this seems like it's close to your heart. Would you make it close to mine? Would you reveal areas where maybe I need to repent, even just a change of attitude or a change of thinking? God, would you just, would you begin to lead me toward that? And if we can be people who rejoice at the unity God brings and who repent over the areas where we might even blindly work against it, I think God could do something really special here. Listen, if you think, oh, this ethnic, racial stuff, it's just, it's just partisanship. Just preach the gospel. Listen, if you say that, what you're saying is, I just want the king. I don't want the kingdom. I don't think you think that way. I don't think that's really what you want. We want to be people who pursue the king and his kingdom. Pick up next week in verse 19. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the powerful work that you do 
bringing people from backgrounds and ages and stages and ethnicities together who would not be together except for the reality of the risen Christ. We thank you for that, God. I pray that would give us joy, give us delight. God, I also ask that you would reveal any blind spots that we have individually or collectively, things we can't even see, that you would allow us to see by your spirit or by your word or through loving exhortation from one another. Could you help us to see things so that, God, we could be a picture of your kingdom so that we could love you, Jesus, as king and be a taste of your real kingdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.